Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, Editor-at-Large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. And this week, we have two interviews. The first is with Garrett Bradley about her new documentary, Time, and the second is with a member of the Gorilla Girls, Katya Kolowitz alias, and their new book is Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly. Yeah, and we thought we'd pair these two together because both of them sort of deal with broader social justice questions that aren't just tied to their particular work, but to the current moment that we're all in, which is, you know, waiting, (laughs) waiting to see what happens with this, with this election. You know, I wasn't with you guys on the Gorilla Girls interview, but I was there for the interview with uh, Garrett Bradley about time. And it, it strikes me that the way that art can kind of constantly turn our attention to like the lived experience or the kind of narrative around these events and the, the many multiple struggles that are happening all at once right now, I just get such a sense of like how much it clarifies what's at stake in those cases. And I particularly felt that with um, the documentary Time, where it's just by going through the experience of what it's like for a family that is dealing with a member who is incarcerated and how awful that is. It just helps to really clarify how unjust the system is. Mm -hmm. I also think that part of it is about um, affecting us emotionally. You know, that that's why politicians play good you know, classic ballots at their, at their rallies because um, art can kind of get you engaged and fired up in a way that um, other things can't. So yeah, both of these are real inciting documents, the Gorilla Girls work and also Garrett's documentary. Well, let's listen to the interviews. Let's do Great. it. Today we're talking to filmmaker Garrett Bradley, whose new documentary is called Time, which was recently released on Amazon Prime. Time follows a truly tireless woman named Fox Rich, the matriarch of a family of six sons, whose husband is serving a 60-year sentence for robbery at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Fox Rich has spent the past 20 years fighting for her husband's release and incredibly keeping her family together. The film combines Fox's own video diaries with Bradley's own documentation of the family, their calls to the cart house, their endless waiting, their lives, and their really astonishing strength and resilience. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, virtually. (laughs) I wanted to start by asking how Fox Rich came into your life and what it was like to collaborate with her on this film because I really had the sense, not just because of the extensive footage that she recorded for her husband to fill him in on her life when he was in prison, but through other means of the film, I felt throughout that it was a co-authored project in a lot of ways, and I really could feel her participation. So I wonder how you achieved that and what your working process was like with her. Yeah, well, so I met Fox actually in the process of making another film, which was a short film that I did with the New York Times Op Docs called Alone. That was 13 minutes long. And that film was, you know, even though it took a slightly different direction, I had sort of initially 
conceived of it as being a series of conversations that were intergenerational between women who were in incarcerated families and relationships, and really thinking of the film as being a space for exchange of information, a place of support. The irony sort of in that film was that Lon, who's sort of the central woman in the film, felt very isolated in her experience. There were not a lot of friends or family members that she could go to to talk through her experience, which was essentially trying to figure out how to move forward with her life as her partner awaited trial for about a year and a half in a private prison in Louisiana. And because of the stigma around incarceration, her resources, she felt, were very limited. And so I had contacted an organization called Flick, Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And Gina Womack, who's the co-founder and director of that organization, picked up. And she said, the first person you have to speak with is Fox Rich. And so Fox is briefly in alone for several seconds at the end of that film and makes a very vivid connection between slavery and the prison industrial complex. And I think, you know, as a filmmaker, when Alone came out as a short film, I was still very much thinking about how important it seemed to try to tackle this issue of incarceration from a feminine point of view, from a familial point of view, from a point of view that focused on the effects of the facts. And I think because I had already built, you know, a dialogue and a relationship with Vox, it felt like a natural transition to make and sort of thinking about making a sister film, extended film to Alone with Vox. I also really appreciated that she was, you know, an older woman. She had been in the process now. Robert had been incarcerated, I think, roughly 18 years at that point. So it was really sort of looking into the future of what Lon herself was sort of grappling with in the very beginning stages of it. And I think, again, just also to show the sort of diversification of experience and navigation within this issue became really important. I think what struck me a lot is the different perspective that you take. And I think about this in a couple of different ways. You know, one is that this is not about someone, and this is what I think makes it actually more effective as a kind of piece on meditating on the urgency of prison abolition, is that these, you know, Fox Rich and her husband did commit a crime. They tried to rob a bank. But in this sense, it shows that it's like the punishment is so clearly far beyond the remedy that would be needed for this crime of desperation, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what I think you tease out in a way that I don't often see in films and documentaries that address this issue, mm-hmm. which is usually about someone who was wrongfully accused. In a sense, like it seems much more powerful to be like, no, here was somebody that did commit a crime, but look at how horrible and the long-term effects of the unjust punishment for that crime. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference of perspective that you had in this film? I think that question actually also ties in with an earlier question, which I realized I didn't fully address, which is that this idea of what it means to work with other people, you know, specifically Mm. the context of documentary filmmaking. For me, before I start a project, I always ask questions. You know, questions are, that's part of the beauty, I think, of both making more art and documentaries is that you're not coming into something necessarily with a thesis. The questions are a part of the process are a part of what it eventually becomes. And so I asked Fox, you know, in the family, why, why is it important for us to work together? Why do we want to make this film? What is it that you guys feel is going to be said? What are we offering, frankly, to the world in this? 
and Fox was very clear in saying that she feels that her story is the story of 2.3 million American families and that there is the potential to offer hope to people in the process of that. And I think knowing where someone's integrity is and where someone's intention is, and if that is in alignment with yours as a filmmaker, is so crucial to mm. being able to make the work. And so I do think that, you know, I don't know if it's so much co-authorship, but I think it's certainly collaboration in the sense that there was very clear understanding of what our intentions were together. And there was real transparency of how we were going to achieve doing that. So for me, it was a matter of saying, okay, I understand that intention. I believe that that intention is a meaningful one as well. As a filmmaker, how am I going to then translate that into a filmic space, right, as a director? And I think that then, for me, that turned into, Eric, I think this exact question of perspective, you know, mm. an entry point. And that and what I heard from Fox and the family in terms of what was important to them translated for me of saying, okay, it's about love. It's about one's ability to stay united over the course of 21 years. It's about one's ability to hold on to their sense of individuality, their sense of self within a system that is systematically intended to break those very things down. And that if we can show those things, it maintains that level of integrity, but it also serves as a template, as sort of examples of resistance that are very mundane, that it doesn't matter how exceptional the family may appear to be, anybody can achieve these three basic things or they can aspire towards them. And so that's where I think the form and the way in which we talk about incarceration, there are new possibilities that can open up in terms of how we tackle this issue. One of the things that really struck me about the movie was, and as you just mentioned, the sort of the mundaneness of the of the kind of resistance that the family puts up against what they are facing. And the camera really kind of lingers on these moments where Fox Rich is just on hold. Mm -hmm. She's just waiting for somebody to pick up the phone. She's waiting for somebody to get back to her. I think it also makes clear like the kinds of different ways in which time plays into this. It's not just the time served. It's the time being served by the family <laughs> who are mm -hmm. constantly mm -hmm. spending time trying to figure out a way to live around this and against right. it. I think it can be really difficult to sit with that kind of thing and allow the camera just to watch it because I think the impulse would be to, okay, let's get to the resolution. Let's get to the action. Mm -hmm. Let's get to her talking to a lawyer. How did you mm -hmm. decide to just allow the things to sort of unfold as they unfolded in whatever time they took to unfold? To be totally fair, I wasn't it's become even more evident to me actually since the film has come out than I think at first I was really just kind of working off of instinct to a certain extent, but I'm not sure I really could see the extent to which time in real time, what it was going to say, you know what I mean? And how it was really going to connect to this current moment. Because I think that, you know, unfortunately this film, I feel like could have come out at any point in history and it would have been relevant because justice is something that we have needed to fight for from the beginning of time. What has changed is the way in which the optics, the way in which technology and the visibility of injustice has played a role in the uprising and white allyship, which is what we're seeing certainly around police brutality and certainly around the uprisings that happened this summer. But what that says to me is that it also even further illuminates the absence of imagery, the absence of optics around the prison industrial complex, around the idea that we have 2.3 million people who are incarcerated and who are a seemingly invisible population. It's almost impossible to go into a prison 
and to document what's happening there. The one drone shot that we were able to get illustrates only a fraction of the 18,000 acres that makes up Angola State Penitentiary. And so in many cases, the family is the only evidence of time being served. The family is the only evidence of what's happening in this system. And so I think that sitting with Fox on the phone, being with the family and understanding their meditations and their experience on time is in many cases, it's the only proof. It's the only proof of what is happening and that's by design. And the way you do it in the film is, you know, using these home movies is just, it expands the sense of this family and that you really take a journey, you know, especially with watching these young boys. So Fox had five children or has five children. So, you know, there's videos of them as these very, very young boys and then all the way to being basically grown men. And you can feel, and Robert Fox's husband is not present in the film at all until basically the end. So you're watching this entire family grow and you're seeing kind of their evolution. And so I think that adds this other level of poignancy. You're capturing kind of the richness of life and then this idea that someone is just so excluded from that. And we're not really seeing Robert's progression until the end. Mm -hmm using kind of archival image and then also the many ways that Fox has told her story and communicates with people. And it's kind of seamless because the film is shot in a, such a beautiful black and white. So it, it all, there's a sense of continuation throughout the film. I just wonder if you could talk about using her footage. Yeah, sure. And I should just make a correction. So they have six sons. Malik okay. is from another relationship, but they are a family of six or I should say eight. So the archival part of the process was really unanticipated. I, you know, again, I thought I was making a 13 minute short film and I, on our last day of filming, said to Fox, okay, I'm gonna head out and I'll come back in a few months and show you what I've done. And that evening she handed me a bag of all of her family archive. That was about, turned out to be about a hundred hours of footage many DV tapes of material that she herself had not seen, you know, since she shot it in the 90s and was all in color, beautiful color. It was a complete sort of radicalizing for me of what I, how I was going to make this film <laughs> with footage that I had no awareness of that materially and sort of tonally was very different. And I think that, you know, myself and Gabe Rhodes, the film's editor, a huge part of the process was looking through that footage and really trying to create parameters around when we were going to come in and out of it, you know, and what is it sort of on a more global level that we wanted to say. And I think it goes back to this question of love, like as sort of as abstract and corny as that sounds, love is the thing that surpasses all time and space. It is something that is, that lacks chronology within ourselves, within our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And so I think the decision fundamentally for us to make this, to really lean into it as a love story, that is also a story of incarceration, allowed us to then weave in and out of the archive, weave in and out of present day and, you know, 18, 19, 20 years prior, and still feel as if we are moving forward. That in many ways, it's, you know, I wanted the film to feel like memories do inside of us, that when we remember something, we're not making a distinction between when it happened. It feels present just by the very act of remembering. It becomes that moment. It takes over that moment. There is no past, present, and future. And so 
I think that that was how we eventually were able to construct it the way that we did was really by sort of oversimplifying and getting to these sort of basic qualities that were intrinsic to the family's connection to their story and to forms of resistance, but then also offered a very practical way in which we maneuvered the edit itself. One of the things that strikes me though, Garrett, is that your work often blends genres in terms of like look and feel. So there was a way in which the kind of movement between say like the lo-fi-ness, which actually, did you treat any of those, especially in the early part of the film, the like lo-fi-ness as it's transferred into black and white looks like it's a very impressive effect. I can't describe it for, for people that are listening rather than viewing, but it, you create these kind of like starbursts that make things seem grainy and then come into focus. But then obviously as you move through the film, there's other like super high def, high art looking kind of super editorial shots. And then you have also this interesting, there's a moment where Fox Rich is, it's a simple everyday thing. She's opening a door in her car, but you have the camera positioned below and diagonally looking up at her. Mm -hmm. And it creates this kind of like disorienting effect that at any moment, it feels like you're moving through a different way of reading the same present of the film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about blending genres and what that helps you get purchase on as a documentary filmmaker just in general, and then how you kind of were able to marshal that play of differences in this particular film. So we didn't actually, I mean, really all we did was just turn it in black and white. <laughs> oh, so there was no like post-production treatment of <laughs> no, it? Okay. Yeah, no, we didn't do any like fancy stuff, which, you know, I'm always down for, but we, <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't in this case. And I, I mean, it's funny because I get this question quite a bit in terms of like the blending of genre and mm -hmm. I guess a part of me a good way of answering it would be to maybe talk through briefly just like two other projects of mine like my first film Below Dreams my first narrative film which came out in 2014 I came to that project because I was traveling on Greyhound buses between New York and New Orleans on my own meeting okay. people taking their photograph recording, having audio conversations with them. And then I, an article came out in the New York Times Magazine that was titled, What is it about these 20-somethings? And it was this really kind of epic look at my generation. And the thesis of it was that we were all so overeducated that we couldn't get jobs and that that was like a travesty. And mm. it was so, it was in such opposition to the people I knew and to the people that I was certainly encountering while I was traveling it occurred to me in that moment that the work I had been sort of collecting could serve a very concrete purpose, which was to offer a sort of, not necessarily a counter narrative, but an additional narrative to what mainstream media was essentially, how mainstream media was defining my generation. And so I went back to New Orleans. I tried to find like a casting director. I'd written sort of a script that was really, I'm not a good writer. So I just kind of was taking all the dialogue from these conversations I had and putting them into some kind of order that made sense. And then sort of shot listing what those scenes would look like from a visual standpoint, because I came from photography. I've always leaned into image making as being something that's equally as sort of emotionally and narratively driving. I couldn't find a casting director. They were making Benjamin Button at the time, I think in New Orleans and could not care less what I was, who I was or what I was doing. <laughs> so I went to Craigslist because it was just a way I could find people. And I spent several months meeting people through Craigslist. I eventually cast everyone from the film, from these conversations I had from Craigslist. And 
none of the folks that were in the film had ever been on camera before or learned lines or anything had been actors, you know, but we're interested in doing that. And so I'm bringing this up because when that film came out, it was sort of coined as being like a hybrid film as being both documentary and both narrative. And for me, that felt a little strange because I was, I knew when I was thinking about like neorealist cinema, you mm. know, and thinking about post-war Italian cinema and the LA rebellion in Los Angeles, which were filmmakers that were also working with quote unquote real people in real environments out of sound stages who were working with resources that were available to them. That had its own terminology and hybrid felt to me sort of like a bizarre not cheapening, but sort of a disregard for history, for what actually had existed oh, I see. before. And so I guess like what I'm really getting at, and I'm going to give another really, really brief example, which was this film, AKA, that was commissioned for the 2019 Whitney Biennial, where I was trying to think about classic American cinema and how conversations between women of different skin tones and how Hollywood had sort of approached colorism between women in the past and wanting to sort of to think about a remake of some of these classic films. And I tried to put together again, it was another instance of like, I'm going to put together a pitch deck or I'm going to put together these like things that you're supposed to do in traditional filmmaking to get money to make a film. And I kept being presented with questions. I didn't have answers, right? And I was less interested in trying to develop a project that was coming straight from answers. So I went to family members of mine. I went to people in my immediate community and I asked them to have conversations with their mothers, with their daughters, who had different skin tones, and to talk about how their personal experiences with love in the workforce with their own self-confidence were different based on these sort of externalized factors. And those answers helped then develop the sort of visual framework for the film. So when I'm presented with the question of genre, it becomes very complicated for me, so complicated that I'm completely uninterested by it. <laughs> because mm. I feel like the meat and potatoes and where I'm most interested is in in these questions and in these answers that develop out of those questions and in the process itself. And I kind of leave the genre to everybody else because it's kind of the least important in my mind. So I don't know if that is me kind of equivocating your question. I think it is, but it's for a good reason. <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, I take your point. I think what I'm trying to get at though is that it's, there are different frames that I think the film uses, like different ways into a moment that. I think is like playful is not the word that I want to use because it's intentional. But I think that you, you marshal, let's say like a bunch of different styles of capturing what's happening. Mm -hmm. And in each moment, my experience of the film was that it gives us a different way of approaching the subject, which is consistent. We're mm -hmm. looking at Fox Rich throughout her whole experience, but the way that you capture those daily moments Mm -hmm. and the different ways that you capture it, I think, draw out different aspects of that experience. Right. And I do think that, like, within... So the form of it, like, how the framing of it... I mean, I do I do draw a lot from, like, propaganda posters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, like, you know, and looking at imagery that has helped define or illustrate who our heroes are over time across the world... And, you know, looking up in an angled way happens to be a pretty consistent framing <laughs> of who our heroes are, who our leaders are. You know, I think it certainly just has seeped into my subconscious. I think I've also explored in my work questions of power, who's in power, who's in control, how is that existing within the framework of the film itself, but then also certainly 
thinking about the camera, right? And the role of the camera in any given space. So I do think that you're right. Those are things that I'm certainly sort of inserting into the formal parts of the work as well that can be traceable and tracked and sort of, yeah, that are intentional. The film is very much a piece of art and it's not, it doesn't have one main message that it's hammering in, like it's not a social service documentary, it's something else. And another way that you get at that is the way you use sound and music. The music in this film and the way it's always in play was another thing I found really affecting. I wonder if you could just talk about who the main composer was and how you were thinking of music as playing such a central role in the film. Yeah, I had a bunch of playlists, or I do have a bunch of playlists on YouTube, like 1970s Ethiopian music, sort of like electronica music. And the YouTube algorithm just, Amahoy just like popped up on my thread. And I was immediately struck by the quality of the melodies and the sound. And I loved everything about what I was hearing. And Gabe and I experimented a bit with this being potentially score for the film, but it wasn't to be honest with you, really, until I started to read about who Emma Hoy was. She's a 96-year-old Ethiopian nun. She's still alive. And she came from a wealthy family in Ethiopia, was then a prisoner of war, was classically trained in Western music, and was a prodigy, pianist prodigy, and had an opportunity to sort of become a famous person, famous pianist, and chose instead to go back to Ethiopia and really kind of created her own genre of music in the process of doing that. And this one recording that happened in 1963, which is what we're using as the score for the film, was done just solely for the purpose of raising money for an orphanage. She hasn't recorded any other music since then. And I loved the idea, like for me, what really kind of solidified wanting to work with the score was bringing these two women together in time and space. And when we shared the film with her and the foundation, Amoy's foundation, the fact that they also felt that it was resonant of her ideals and what she cares about in the world, it just felt almost cosmic. I mean, and there are so many elements of this film for me that I think felt really cosmic, you know, I mean, even just thinking about the archive, right, and not knowing that it existed, but then seeing these frames of Fox putting the camera in similar places that I had put the camera some 19 years later, there's no explanation for it. It just felt like all these things wanted to happen. You know, and there's also, I think, as you mentioned, like there's a certain fluidity and linearity that we certainly were exploring from a visual standpoint with the work that I think the music just further helped to reinforce. Jameson Shaw, who also did some original score towards the end of the film, he's somebody who I've worked with quite a bit. And that was the one moment, without giving anything away, it was the one moment at the end of the film where we really felt like we needed to have a real tonal shift. And I think that the question was, how do we do that without feeling like we've got multiple scores or multiple films kind of existing in one? And he listened to Emma Hoy's music quite a bit. And we tried to kind of tease out similar qualities in order for there to be some level of linearity within that. Garrett, I was wondering, like Kate was saying, this not really a social commentary documentary. It really is very much a love story. And one of the things that struck me about it is that it's incredibly intimate. It's particularly intimate at the very end. And I suppose we shouldn't tell listeners how it ends. <laughs> I'm not sure, but... There's a moment within the family that is an incredibly, incredibly intimate moment that the camera is witness to. And I was wondering if you've talked to the family about the movie and how they have processed their own experience within it and how they understand such intimate parts of their family and experiences being visible to other people. 
Well, I think that that goes back to just the first question that I felt I needed to ask before we started even making the film. Because I think it takes a certain kind of person to allow cameras to be with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think that Fox and Robert, because we had conversations with Robert, it was really important to me that he had clarity and agency around what we were doing and why we were doing it. If it was something, again, that was also in alignment with his ideals, even though he wasn't physically there and with the sons. And I think that they, it just goes back to them feeling very strongly that their story is the story of many. It's the story of not just 2.3 million people that are incarcerated, but double, triple, quadruple that number if you take into account the families and the loved ones, the people that are also serving time on the outside. And so I think that what we were capturing had intention behind it and clarity around why we were capturing it and what it was going to say. And we were on the same page about what those things were. And so when I'm working in this specific type of context as a filmmaker, you are in constant communication, again, to make sure that everyone understands why we're shooting what we're shooting. But then there does need to be like real trust in terms of letting me go to the editing room and make the film and then show them the film and say, okay, does this hold up to the integrity that we've talked about? And I think that for me, the bottom line at a bare minimum, you want to make something that folks couldn't argue with. And that's different than making propaganda. That's different than making something that is shows perfection, which if someone were to make a film about me, I would hope that it would just be perfection. (laughs) That's like, right. Like no one, but I mean, you know, so bottom line, you want something that someone couldn't argue with. And then the fact that they love it and the fact that it is above and beyond what they had hoped for, that is just the icing on the cake. And I think we got incredibly lucky that Fox and Rob and all six of their sons do feel that it not only does justice to their story, but also, holds up to the overall message that they want to bring to the world, you know, which is unity and love. I wonder just to close, being so close to a story about incarceration, making this film, if you had thoughts afterwards about what needs to change in the criminal justice system, or if you came away with other workings of carceral politics that you hadn't thought of before, if what you were left with just being so close to a family that had been affected by incarceration? I mean, I think that there's multiple ways of of answering that question. I think that it's also kind of at the heart of the direction of the film, which is that getting into legislative change, it needs to happen and really thinking about the numbers and the statistics and how do we talk about a revolution from a real systematic standpoint. That's an important conversation. That's a conversation that is that has been happening and that needs to continue to happen. But I think as a filmmaker, I also feel that in addition to some of those really specific changes, my way of answering it is to think about the effects of those facts and to lean into how do we create as many different entry points? How do we make it unavoidable and unequivocal for people to enter this issue? I think that what I've taken away from it goes back to sort of what I mentioned earlier, which is that we need to see what's happening in order for people to also connect with it. It is not one or the other, but they both need to happen in tandem. And I think for me, it just has become all the more clear that we need to have more examples 
of what families are going through. We need to see that. We need to see what 2.3 million people being incarcerated looks like. We need to crack open all of this idea of invisibility in order for change to also happen on that legislative level, on that political level. I think that there's a real call to action for artists and for filmmakers to think about how do we address that from a visual standpoint? How do we tackle this from a visual standpoint? Everyone is going to address incarceration in the prison industrial complex in a different way. And I think that one is not better than the other. I think that they all need to happen hand in hand. So for me, it's a matter of continuing to do work around visibility, you know, of tackling erasure through my work. You've done a really amazing job with this film in taking a step towards that. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak with you all. I really appreciate it. Thanks and congratulations on your film. Thank you so much, Garrett. That was really a pleasure. We've been speaking with Garrett Bradley. Her new film is called Time. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Garrett Bradley, whose new film is Time. We now turn to our conversation with Katya Kolowitz of The Gorilla Girls. Their new book is Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly. Today we're joined by one of the members of the legendary art group, The Gorilla Girls. The Gorilla Girls are an anonymous collective of feminist artist activists who first emerged in the art world in the 1980s. One of their most famous, perhaps infamous is the better word, posters asked, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? I'm sure most of our listeners have actually seen that um, image. It's a reclining nude with a gorilla mask on. They were a sensation right away from the beginning, and they have gone on pushing the art world over its exclusion of women and artists of color over the past 30 years. A curator at the Whitney described them as art world royalty to the New York Times. All of the members go by pseudonyms of pioneering female artists. So today we have Katya Kolwitz with us. We can't reveal her real identity, but Katya is one of the founding members of the Gorilla Girls. And she's here to discuss a new book that collects the group's work. It's called Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly. Katya, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Katya, I was shocked looking at some of the statistics that are printed on a uh, posters that you guys would uh, plaster around the city when you first started, um, you know, of the four major museums, I believe it was in the year of 1985, there was but a single uh, solo exhibition um, given to a woman artist and lots more galleries that actually had no female artists on their rosters. And I was also really amazed by how you called out other artists and art writers for their complicity and this kind of exclusion. It just, it seemed so personal. And I'm wondering how people responded to you guys in the beginning and um, what kind of waves those, those posters uh, started when, when they went up. That's really a great question because Things in a long history of activism and art, uh, like what we do, always starts with something. When you mentioned the artist, that kind of was the first idea. We realized there had to be a new kind of political art that would break through people's preconceived notions that the art world knew best, museums knew best, and artists who weren't super successful should blame themselves and not a completely screwed up system. 
And the idea came to make a list of artists with a headline. Um, these artists allow their works to be shown in galleries that show less than 10% women or none at all. And it was a list of some of the most well-known male, uh, almost all white male artists of the day. And we did a companion poster to that. That was kind of the thought. Let's do a new kind of political art to break through people's preconceived notions. So this one, this one poster and its companion and the next one, which was about museums. Let me just say, it's hard to even imagine this now, but in 1985, it was really hard to do and print a poster. There was no digital. You can just sit there and go boing, 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 make this bigger and make this smaller. You know, you have to have special skills. And luckily, we had somebody with special skills, a few people, actually, um, one of them being me. And so we passed the hat around. We made these posters and snuck around in New York late at night and put them up on the streets. We had no idea what would happen, but all hell broke loose immediately. And people... Women artists and artists of color were, uh, it was fantastic, you know, just watching that on the street. It was like a breath of fresh air. And the powers that be were really pissed off. And since then, we've now done, I don't know, a couple of hundred projects in this book. There are almost 400 photographs of different projects of ours. And we've basically stuck to the same philosophy. Don't do boring political art. You know, try to write a really out there headline and twist an issue around and, and prove your case with killer statistics. And we still, you know, we've branched out to huge projects all over the world, um, but we still have the same philosophy. What, how different do you think the art world of today is than the one that you were um, protesting in 1985? Well, it is slightly better for women and um, BIPOCs, but it's not, uh, the system is much worse because in those days art was cheaper. Now it's all controlled by a few galleries. Art is so expensive that it's almost impossible for museums to cast the wide net they really need to be casting and um, they can't afford, you know, and they, but they can always buy the art their billionaire trustees already collect. You know, the, they can always say, oh, would you buy this for me? You know, a $2 million, a $3 million, a $4 million. But for the incredible work out there by such a wide variety of artists, they can't do that. Could you tell us how the group came together? What was the initial sort of impetus that made you decide to really be a collective not and not just sort of fight this on your own or individually as artists? That kind of happened by chance too. We formed a group with the idea to do posters and we started doing that immediately. So we didn't form to be a talking group, but there was plenty of talking and arguing, but it wasn't about finding a perfect position, deciding um, each time, um, <clears throat> whether something was politically correct or in a certain format or something, it really was about trying to change people's minds about these issues in a world where everyone believed, you know, we're in the art world now. Um, we branched out later to a lot of other things, but where everyone believed, most people believed that museums knew best 
And if you uh, didn't have a big career, um, you were not a good artist. So we set out to prove that going after one group in the art world after another. And it started working. People started changing the, their idea about it. As you were experienced in the beginning, you know, you said all hell broke loose. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there was some, some pushback. But what did that look like? I mean, you know, how did you become known and discussed and the initiatives that you were proposing? How did you see those uh, people responding to them at the time? And um just because you were all anonymous, you know, if, if the if the ire couldn't be directed at you exactly, you know, where where did it go? How did the Gorilla Girls, you know, catch catch uh, hell from people? Well, the gallerists and museums, you know, made a lot of noise about how unfair this is when we fingered people and stuff. But artists themselves completely welcomed it. And after a while, we had we got a post office box, so we got tons of letters, you know, in those days. And of course, once we could correspond with people online, we got thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. And all the letters, you know, basically... You know, some were angry, but most just said, thank you. Thank you. This means something to me. Another question I have, you know, something that you, it not only did your critique focus on inclusion, it also focused on the way that um, artists, you know, that wall text, that the depictions of artists' work and discrepancies between, you know, the life an artist has lived and how they were portrayed by their work in a museum. And an example in the book is Chuck Close, you know, who's been rumored to have uh, sexually harassed associates and other other people. And I guess a question I have, and it's a, it's a much larger question, is like, how, do, how does one deal with that? Do, you know, do we censor the work of Chuck Close or is it just important in the exhibition of Chuck Close's to mention this artist has been accused of sexual harassment or of a... Uh, in an exhibition of Carl Andre, you know, this, this artist is thought to have killed his wife. Um, do we lose these men or do we just exhibit them differently, acknowledging uh, some of their, the personal information about them? Well, I don't think I have a, a firm answer to that because I think each thing is very different. But there was always this idea of the great male genius who was above it all, um, you couldn't criticize his lifestyle, even though many of the artists that people revere were sexual predators, sexual abusers, et cetera, et cetera, and in some cases, murderers. Um, what we're interested in is the debate going on. Everyone's trying to figure this out right now. And that Chuck Close poster came about in an interesting way. The Gorilla Girls were in a show at the Hirshhorn Museum. And um, I was the one who went, and uh, I hated being in Washington, D.C. It was just a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and, you know, Trump was in, in office, and I thought, oh, God, I can't bear being here. And then I, I heard that the Obama portraits were going up in the National Gallery. So I went to stand online with thousands of people, you know, so happy, excited, every kind of person wanting to see the portraits. And when you leave um, Barack Obama's uh, portrait, you're in a room of other uh, presidents from his era, you know, the current era. And I couldn't believe it 
Bill Clinton's portrait was done by Chuck Close. One abuser painting another. And it just seemed too good to be true. And we started talking about it and thinking, you know, museums need help figuring out how to handle this situation. So we wrote three museum wall labels for Chuck, for Chuck Close. Um, the first one is for museums afraid of alienating billionaire trustees and collectors who donated the artist's work. The second is for museums conflicted about disclosing an artist's abuse next to his art. And the third is for museums who need help from the Gorilla Girls. So it starts out real nice, you know, Chuck Close, portrait of Bill Clinton, blah, blah, blah. Chuck Close is one of the most important artists of his generation and the creator of a new kind of portraiture consisting of patterns of color. And then it says, it gets a little, the next one, you know, is Chuck Close, next choice the museums have. Chuck Close is one of the most important artists of his generation, blah, blah, blah. Like many artists, he has had a few disgruntled employees. And then the third one, our version, Chuck Close has had a huge career with prices to match. He's been accused of sexually abusing models and students he picked up at fancy art schools. How fitting and ironic that he painted the official portrait of Bill Clinton. The art world tolerates abuse because it believes art is above it all and rules don't apply to genius white male artists. Wrong. So it's really, so we give something to think about. It's, it's a new way of looking at something that makes you think about it too, because your question was, can't really be answered. You know, everyone has an answer. Every case is a case. You know, in terms of the kind of, this kind of work that you've been doing for so long, I wonder, you know, you just said you were recently at an exhibition, Trump is in office. Chuck Close and Bill Clinton, right? There's like all these things, all these these men who just are sort of icons of abuses of power. I wonder if there's a point at which you feel a little discouraged, you know, like saying, I've been at this since 19, since the 1980s, maybe even before then. And have we gotten better? Well, we always are trying to, de- you know, we're artists, we're, we're artists, so we're always trying to push forward, deepen our critique, do things in new ways, see what happens, see, see what the effect is. And so it's really hard not to keep going. And that's true of so many artists and activists today. Well, first of all, it's always true of artists. We are so lucky that against all odds, artists, writers, creative people of all kinds keep working because without that we'd have no culture because hardly anyone gets the appreciation that they would like or deserve but they're still doing it anyway also in a way things are really horrible but it's also a golden age of activism there's so much creativity out there there are so many people uh trying to change the system and really using their own creativity to do it in a different way. And that's evident at signs uh, in marches. It's evident in incredible groups uh, like Black Lives Matter. You have to be optimistic about that. On the other hand, to me, you have to be totally pessimistic because nothing has changed. It's been so long, nothing has changed. We have an election coming up. 
if the uh, power changes in this election, will anything change? And it's like any field. There are great people in government. There are great people in almost every job. But the system is so moribund, we don't seem to have the ability to change, even though we really want to. Mm. But when you guys got more uh, famous, was that ever a tension for you that you started off as, you know, guerrilla activists doing work that no one asked for and making shocking pronouncements on the art world. And then slowly you became kind of these darlings of the art world and you're invited to do shows and to collaborate with the museums you've critiqued. Um, was that ever a tension in the group? It was a very bizarre thing. This started when we were, after we were in the Venice Biennale in 2005. So it started a long time ago. The art world came calling and yes, some people wanted to use the Gorilla Girls to, um, you know, art wash their reputations and seem that they, and seem that they were better than they really are. And some were really trying to do things inside institutions and having a hard time. And since we're a group who always wanted to have our work seen, uh, you know, the streets were always our favorite thing. But when the museums came calling. It was irresistible to do things in museums because the museum audience was was one of the big audiences we were going after. And we still feel that when you see our work on the walls in a museum, after you see it, you can never look at things in a museum the same way again. And a perfect example of this is that uh, most well-known poster of ours do women have to be naked to get into the Metropolitan Museum? And then it says, you know, less than 5% of the artists in the Metropolitan Museum of Art are women, but, you know, 85% of the nudes are female. And it really makes you, it does everything that we want to do. And then you can't tell that you have done it until you create something and see the effect it has. It also led to our motto. I mean, no, we're not, you know, we, we're not, we don't spend a lot of time worrying about a perfect position. We love to have our work where people can see it. And we hear from thousands and thousands telling us that it made a difference to them and they want to do work like us too. I think one thing about doing political art is it's so hard to push that rock up the hill that it can be very demoralizing for people. And one thing we've learned is not to worry about that. Just do one thing. If it works, do another. If it doesn't, do another anyway. And we just keep chipping away. And it, in its own little way, it's had an effect. Have you ever been tempted by revealing your identity? Or have the Gorilla Girls discussed some kind of mass, <laughs> mass reveal of its members? Well, first of all, you know, over... It's now 35 years, so we've had over 60 members over the years, some for months, some for a single meeting, some forever, you know, cis, lesbian, transgender, diverse in age, um, sexual orientation, class, and from many different backgrounds, um, South Asian, Asian, African-American, European, Latinx, etc. Everyone is different. Everyone has the work of the the um, artwork of everyone is is unique, and over the years, many of our members, especially early members, are outing themselves. 
for our current members, we have no interest in doing that, although people try, I suppose. But, you know, it's, it's, the anonymity is still really important because it lets us represent something rather than just be, you know, name artists on our own or something like that. But the Gorilla Girls are so much bigger than a person right now or, or a name or an identity that even when, when some people do come out, it doesn't really make much of a difference. The group itself is really the thing. Is there um, another frontier that the Gorilla Girls are pursuing in the art world, you know, either in, in conversation with gender and racial uh, equality of representation? Is there a, do you think there's another issue that we should all be focusing on much more um, in, in, in the selling of art and museums and all that? Well, a lot of our work has been about the corrupt system. A lot of our work is about racism. From the very beginning, we 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 um, start. We had street posters um, about that, and have continued to this day. And that work isn't done. I mean, I don't know why even think about that. Of course, there's like a million things that have to be done, but we gotta fix this. You know, we have to make sure that um, everyone tries to change this corrupt, racist, unfair system and in any way they can. You know, we do it in our own crazy way. You know, this uh, we call it creative complaining. Other people have uh, a myriad of incredibly um, successful ways to do it. And when things don't work, you just got to pick up and do the next thing. Well, that seems like a good place to end, potentially, on, on a note of picking up and doing the next thing. Katya Kolwitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really great to be here. And um, all I can say to anybody listening is make trouble, behave badly like we try to do. That's perfect because the new book, if you need guidance on how to behave badly, the new book is called Guerrilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly. Thanks again, Katya. Thank you. We've been speaking with Katya Kolowitz of the Gorilla Girls. Their new book is Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.